Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is the Professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, hello. Tonight's show, we're going to be talking about uh, Takashi Miike's 1999 film Dead or Alive, a very unique film in the outlaw period, but also uh, some of the other hidden delights of probably one of his most recognisable periods of filmmaking. But before we obviously get into that, I mean, Stephen, I mean, how you been doing? I mean, we're obviously in the middle of a heat wave here in the UK, which is real fun to record and edit and do all that sort of thing, and I can tell you now. Yeah, spoilers to everybody, I would not. It's, um, it's nearly midnight on a Friday night, and it's absolutely sweltering. <laughs> Although, by all accounts... So, uh, Eld and I live in the south of England in different places, but but definitely south of the Watford Gap, and um, it feels like I'm south of the equator at the moment. <laughs> it's, but, the thing is, those Brits, our, our blood's too thick for sunny weather. We don't deal well with this sort of climate, so to have any sort of like mild heat wave, we just we just don't uh, function at all. So no, it's 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 fairly miserable. So um, we'll see. I really don't do well with heat. It's very sad. So we will um we will see how we go. But tempers might rise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other fun thing is the fact that we can't have a fan on the studio because it it play it messes with the audio. So um it's basically a case of just you know, grin and bear it and uh show some of that blitz spirit to get this podcast recorded. So <laughs> But if you haven't done already, um, you can obviously follow us on, f- check out all our archive over on uh, AsianCinemaFilmClub.wordpress.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you may have also seen on our feeds uh, recently that we've shuffled around with our servers, and you can now get our complete archive on your podcast servers, so you can listen from all the episodes from episode one onwards. Um with with uh, for your favorite podcast app so hopefully uh, that will make everything a little easier for people now i mean obviously since the last episode i know we all had sort of great plans to go and see godzilla king of the monsters uh plans which as was expected for myself fell through although i did see detective pikachu oh yes yeah, so i talked uh, about that last time what did you think of that i liked it it's very fun and light-hearted which is kind of what what you want uh, from a Pokemon property and it kind of like reminded me how far behind I am with just like where things are with Pokemon because when Pokemon first came out I was like huge fan like I think a lot of people were and I knew like the first like 101 Pokemon and then obviously as each installment has come out they've added more and more Pokemon and even though I play sort of Pokemon Go casually I was like looking at some of these characters like are they new? I, is this like the wizard where we're getting like previewed a bunch of Pokemon before they come out or or what? But no, I really enjoyed it. Um, I had this wearing thought that they were just going to do do the same story as the original Pokemon animated movie when I saw Mewtwo appear at the start. Um, so it was kind of good that they used him in an interesting way. So yeah, I I I thought it, I was thought it was fun. I'm not sure I'm in a rush to go and see it again, but it was certainly enjoyable. No, like I mean, it's interesting. It's 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 um it's a film version of a fairly unloved Nintendo DS game, isn't it? <laughs> Which is a bit odd. Um, <laughs> but I know I I think as I said before, you know, I I was afraid it was going to be all about Ryan Reynolds, and you know Pokemon aren't my thing, but I found it hugely enjoyable. Um, shockingly so. So I'm glad you liked it as well. Um. I have to say it was surprisingly dark in places, uh, <gasps> yeah, such as God, yes. interrogating Mr. Mime by pretty much reenacting the ter- interrogation scene from Reservoir Dogs. 
I was like, oh, you're threatening to burn a Pokemon alive. Uh, there was, oh, that's a huge yeah. move. There was, a, there was a lot of darkness in it. It was, um, I, I, you know, it, it, was, it was a very interesting and strange film all round. And not, and, you know, probably not one for the seven-year-olds in some, some regards. What, because they don't want to hear Pikachu say Psyduck's going to blow his shit? <laughs> yeah, that's part I mean, I'm really happy. I love Psyduck. Psyduck is, like, one of my favourite Pokemon. And to see him front and centre where he should be was just, just great. So, yeah, I was very happy about that. Although, I I mean, I had all these great ambitions to catch early showings of Godzilla King of the Monsters, and it's all sort of fallen apart, because the only showings we have near here are, like, 11... I think it's, like, a half 11 at night, which, to myself, translates as just a very expensive nap. Because um, I know if I go to cinema at that time, I'm just going to fall asleep. Especially, so there's no point. Yeah, that would be the same the cinemas we have here with their ridiculous reclining chairs and stuff. Yeah, so I haven't seen it as such, unless I get lucky and an early showing shows up somewhere. But, you know, seeing this Google when I asked it where my local nearest showing was was give me a location about five miles away. I don't uh, think that's going to happen. No, I'm going to wait. I'll wait to home media. Mm. Or somewhere, some other way appears. I think. I know that the uh, guys over at Blade Looking Thieves gave it their thumbs up, which is you know, you know there are people they know what they're talking about. Yeah, I, I, I like I said, like we said last time, I, I feel it's got some bad <coughs> reviews from people who don't understand what it is they're watching. But we'll reserve judgment to one of us sees it. Yeah, but I mean, has there been anything else you've sort of seen since last episode? Um, in, as in terms of like Asian cinema, or is it just? Um, it was really been to bed Pokemon. No, 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 no. I have actually. Um, so it is now July. It's certainly July as, as time of recording, and I have written my first review for Eastern Kicks this year, which is um terribly embarrassing. The good news was it was a fantastic film that I really wasn't expecting. It's called The Fable by um Kan Eguchi. Um, okay. He's only ever made one film before, um, which is quite a fun thing as well, actually. Basically, it's one of those live-action mangas adaptations which often makes my heart sink for all sorts of reasons because usually they try adapting it before it's finished or they drag them out into two movies. I think in recent past, of there have been some great manga adaptations that's, that you know, and we've spoken about many of them. But recently they have become chores, so I was a bit dubious when I got handed this assignment. However, I'm pleased to announce it's absolutely fantastic. Um, it, it's not terribly original. It's about a uber-capable hitman who happens to be an idiot savant, which I think elements of which we probably could all find other films have got it in there. But it's done in a sort of a hyper-violent, hyper-stylish, and actually quite funny way. Um... I think it's only recently come out for real. It's doing all the festivals at the moment, which is why we've got uh, a screener of it at Eastern Kicks. But hopefully if it gets a, a, a wider release, um, maybe we'll talk about it more fully or people get a chance to see it because it's um, Japanese cinema has had a bit of a lull recently and quite often comedies miss the mark. And this one just for me works and it was very stylish. Think, think about... Uh, uh, as a humorous John Wick, and that would be the sort of thing that you'd be getting out of it. Oh, nice. Um, for myself, I did actually catch one other thing, other than, uh, obviously, it's to Pikachu, and that was uh, Wolf Guy from 1975 by uh, Kazuyuko uh, Yamaguchi. Now, this one I caught in Shudder, so I caught it with the Joe Bob Briggs 
um, inserts. Now, he's also a director who did the Sister Street Fighter movies. Really top director, in my opinion, there. Uh, but Wolf Guy stars Sonny Chiba. He's basically he's the Japanese take on uh, Lycanthrope, so Wolfman. And this film really came out basically because they, with within obviously Asian cinema, they'd adapted many things uh, such as like vampire movies and zombie movies, and they'd obviously done the Invisible Man, which is super popular with Cheapskate um, Studios. And then they obviously tried to do the Wolfman and obviously not knowing anything about werewolf movies they basically just made it up and the episode is this absolutely bonkers film uh where Sonny Chiba seems to be playing like six or seven different roles um it, they kind of decide he's like a reporter or a spy or a government agent he just seems to seem to change um sort of roles from scene to scene but it's a uh, it's a really fun and random piece of you know Jason and Maslees, I guess, is the best way to to call it. As there is some, uh, there's a overly over sex sort of element to it, but uh, definitely one worth checking out, especially if you've got Shadow at the moment. It's uh, it's a real highlight, and more so because when it comes to Joe Bob Briggs driving, we only seem to be getting half of the double features. If you have the American service, you get like two films. Uh, whereas over here in the UK, we're getting sort of shafted and only getting the one film uh, with his sort of uh, unique commentary. I mean, do, are you a fan of Joe Bob Briggs? Are you familiar with his work at all? I'm vaguely aware um, okay. from other podcasts talking about it, to be honest with you, <laughs> but I haven't really experienced it myself. He's kind of like a, a cowboy version of Kim Newman, but more random. He's really sort of knowledgeable and just like really gets, he's the sort of person you want to watch sort of trashy horror movies with. He's so enthusiastic about everything and the only problem I have is that um, it's got like this Mystery Science Theater 3000 sort of where you get a bit of the movie and you get like this little insert and then you watch a bit more of the movie and you get more insert, more commentary. And I kind of prefer the, you know, like the movie drum style where we get the introduction, um, like your Alex Cox's introduction, and then we get their film. But um, with the Job of Briggs one, you constantly get these like interruptions. So you kind of get into the flow of the film and then you get suddenly this bloody static screen and you get another bit of insert from him which i don't know he kind of added to wolf guide so i had a lot of fun so, with that so one, it's certainly. it's like inter it's it's not over the movie it sort of like breaks in between it yeah it's kind of yeah it just basically you get you'll get like uh like 20 30 minutes of, of movie and then you get like this little insert and here basically commenting what you've seen and throwing little like schlocky sort of jokes uh where he talks about like his uh, whenever he talks about uh, people like using like um, like weapons and things like that, so it's like carburetor foo, bunny foo, schlock foo, and he has all these weird like terminology. Mm. And obviously, as growing up in the UK, we never got Joe Bricks over here. So I mean, the first thing, first means I knew about him was through his books. I didn't actually know he had like this Alex Cox style presence of uh, having the TV show. So it's great that Shadow are obviously doing bringing back the driving and doing stuff with him there, and obviously Netflix at the moment are doing MST3K. Um, so it's great that these guys are getting brought back and given these platforms to pedal their wares on, especially with Job of Breaks, because he's such a, a knowledgeable guy. If if uh, with a unique approach to uh, to talking about these films. And so what I'm interested in, if he's the cowboy version of Kim Newman, what's Kim mm. Newman to him? <laughs> Kim Newman is Kim Newman is steampunk before steampunk was a thing. 
I, I love the fact everyone thinks that Kim Newman's in costume, but he's not. That's just how no, Kim that's Newman how he dresses. dresses. Yeah, no, I, um, we obviously all adore Kim Newman, but um, I'm certainly a big fan of his written work. Um, but yeah, he has an interesting um, satoric, satorical style, doesn't he? Oh yeah, definitely. He's like certainly one of my sort of mentor figures there, and. I remember everyone used to think it was like so like hard, and then they had Empire's Thunderdome competition, which was basically like this competition for a glorified intern position at Empire. And he was like, he was like one on the, on the critical panel for these pieces people were in, and he was so brutal. I was like, God, <laughs> I thought you were just like you, you know, with like this light hard guy who just reviewed DVD trash for the Video Dungeon. So in terms of film writing, though, I mean, he wrote Nightmare movies like. The quintessential book on horror cinema. Um, as I think as we mentioned before, you if you pick up that and you pick up the Monster Show, um, a cultural history of horror by David Skull, you've basically got a complete history of horror from classic horrors like Todd Browning and uh, like the original sort of vampire and uh, sorry Dracula and Frankenstein movies all the way up to like the cl- the new sort of wave of when we like uh, talk about the the new extreme new extremity movement and things like that. So. Definitely some really interesting writing though if you uh, if you're a horror fan. So well on the complete polar opposite of things tonight, we're obviously going to be talking about uh, Takashi Miike. In more particular we're gonna be talking about the outlaw period of Takashi Miike, which I think is really sort of the entry point for a lot of people when we sort of about we started talking about this work and I think it had a lot to do with when we had this reboom of Asian cinema, the so called Asian invasion and as we said many times before, I mean, there was sort of three key films. You had Audition by Takashi Miike, you had Battle Royale, and you had Ringu. And it was really surprising that, obviously, so many people sort of gravitated towards and picked up Audition, because while it's very talked about its ending, it's a very sort of slow burn and almost psychological thriller. And it's very different than the other films of, of that period, um, mainly because it's a lot more subtle and it certainly doesn't go to... Arguably the same extreme lengths as, you know, the film we're going to be talking about tonight, Dead or Alive, and um, certainly some of the more notorious titles such as, like, Ishii the Killer. So, I mean, was it sort of when you were entering the sort of same sort of period as myself when it came to his work, or did you sort of come to him later? No, um, I mean, I, I had, um, I think I've talked about this before, I, I had, I was kind of reintroduced to Asian cinema very much through those films you talked about, and in my case, especially Audition and Ring. Um, I'm sure I read about them in Hot Dog magazine or something like that at the time, picked them up on uh, DVD because of Tartan, you know, all all those touch points we've talked about before. I picked them up at the same time. Um, Ring intrigued me for a whole bunch of different reasons. And uh, Hideo Nakata has hasn't failed to disappoint me ever since, apart from Dark Water. But mm-hmm. and he's still doing it. They've just made another Sadako movie, and he's behind it. And oh my God, why? Um, but but the whole mythos behind Ring really fascinated me. And it actually got me interested in the books, and 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 that got me sort of into J horror. But I picked up Audition at the same time, and I show anybody who who would listen those two films. And what's interesting is, in Ring, that's as pretty much as good as Hideo Nakata got. Right, whatever. I know he's got his fans, but I, he makes dreadful movies these days. <laughs> that Takashi Mikey film is yeah. 
so atypical of anything he has done. The man has made two horror films in his over 100 film career and neither of them is audition. Yet it's always put under this um, J-horror banner. And then when you go and look at his other work, there are quiet films, there are films which are dramas. In fact, we might talk about one in a minute. But actually, you know, then you go back and you discover this guy and, you know, we spoke earlier about, you know, I asked you, what, what do you mean by the outlaw period? I'm guessing you're not getting that from Tom Mez or someone else that, that, that that's that, that's coined that it's, phrase. I think, yeah, it's probably more than likely Tom Mez. I mean, Tom Mez is obviously, when it comes to, um, comes to like, obviously, Takashi Mikami, mean, he wrote Agitator, the one that, like, the essential books on, on Mikami's work. And he also wrote um, Iron Man about Tetsuburo, which, again, is another essential tome. And yeah, I think it. I think it's become Thomas. I think is the one who obviously put it out there, and it's sort of been picked up, just generally among sort of like Mikke fans of, sort of establishing these two sort of peri- these periods of work for Mikke. I mean, obviously, when we talk about his early films, and it's right, really, right up into I would say Imprint, uh, which is his Masters of Horror episode. And I mean, this is not overly too long ago. I mean, we're talking about. Yeah, two thousand six, two thousand five. Yeah, because I, I asked you know when does when does this period end? Because and I think you were right because you talked about well I think you becomes more commercial after that. And I, I think you'd flirted with commerciality yeah. beforehand, but certainly when I so so to go back to the, your original point, I sort of I found audition. I thought wow, this is just those moments in audition and we've talked about audition before you can go back and find a podcast on another show about where you and i have talked about it for a long time um yeah we and uh in a horror draft we we talked about it pretty extensively in, with uh Zoe, in, so. indeed so you know it's it's got moments of um quite shocking horror but it's shocking because of what it's set against a very very by the numbers very japanese very japanese cinematography kind of almost romantic drama although it's not really but anyway it's not very like it but what you do then certainly back in the day back in 2099 whenever that came out um you know tartan started pumping stuff out um you started being able to get books and magazines and reviews and you start investigating you go investigate backwards from there and you find the films which i think we'll have a chat about in a minute about what we like in this period and you start finding about this these crazy films um, where mental shit happens, and <laughs> and 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 it's actually almost like it's all got distilled down to a point where he does it in audition two or three times. Yeah, but nothing in audition is as nuts as what we're going to talk about in the second half of the show today. <laughs> and then I'm actually a bigger fan of his of his post outlaw period work, which I think sometimes gets. I think I'm probably quite unusual in that, but I I love watching his um, manga and game adaptations. I love watching his um, big budget attempts, um, and I love it when you find a film of his that doesn't fit into any category like you had before. And you know, let's let's not make any bones about it. He's made over a hundred films, and at least forty of them are shit. Um, <laughs> um, you know. He's not. He doesn't make as many as he used to, but he still makes more than most. Um, but more often than not, I think it's very hard to find any of his films that haven't got any redeeming qualities in. No, I think when it comes to Mike, he's one of those directors who he's better known by his set 
set pieces than he is his actual films. Mm. And I think a lot of people just like take certain scenes and they they talk about it. I and mean, we obviously talk about the the finale of Audition, which is obviously and audition this this legendary status is like one of the world's scariest movies and it's sort of like just this one scene at the end uh obviously the scenes before that i mean we've obviously got the man in the sack sequence um another sort of party tricks that are very talented actress in that movie is <laughs> sort of being a cat being what's it she said i mean she said she was like a uh a method actor so she insisted on doing like the scene where she has to vomit into a dog bowl herself and oh jesus yeah, this is why it's difficult to recommend Mike because you direct, you argue the case as Mike as this important director, um, as, of especially in terms of helping the revival of Asian cinema. At the same time, you have to sort of touch upon the fact that he's a director who's dealing with a lot of very extreme images and extreme themes in his work, and those are sort of the ideas which sell his films. And there's often the rest of the film often fails to live up to these sort of big moments. And I think this is something we'll also talk about a bit later as well. But it's also meant that there's a certain level of fanboy who came in and they were watching things like Full Metal Yakuza, uh, like Dead or Alive and um, City of Lost Souls. So these like really extreme movies. And then he gets to imprint and he starts going more commercial. I mean, he obviously starts sending more of a name for himself and he does start with things such as like uh, Box with like the free extremes and he does um his unusual western um oh what's it called suzuki western Django, Django. i mean i would say that's for me that's the film which it's it now starts again that's that's the film because that film was you know he, he'd made his name internationally with audition and and then people discovering his other stuff and that film was yep. actually i mean it was aimed at a western audience that's not kid ourselves um it's, it's it's got westerners in it for one um and i, and I would say absolutely that's the point that's that's phase two of his career maybe we've had a phase three since but um because we are still talking 15 years ago but his his earliest his earlier stuff is interesting but i think you're right they are they are films of moments of scenes of ideas um i think his stronger filmmaking comes after Definitely so. I think once he starts getting becoming more recognised as a commercial director, when he's doing things like 13 Assassins and Yataman, that we see a lot more flow to his films. I mean, once he moves out of that period, because up until that point, I mean, he's directing like eight movies a year. So he's he's pumping films out for the studios. And I think it's just he earns his re- reputation of being able to put out films cheap and fast. And obviously with the studios, that's what they want. Because they've got this director video market that so has to be satisfied because often obviously like Japan especially they don't have the same sort of shame for a director video market that we obviously do here um, these films aren't seen as less it's just so they're obviously pumping these ones out and it's not to say there isn't great films in this period because you've got films like Rainy Dog and you've got Bad People in China which are absolutely fantastic um, it's just at the same time you've got films which I think he, in I think one of the Tartan bonus features he describes his filmmaking as uh, being a director who makes films for boys out in the country, <laughs> which I always thought was kind of amusing. So he's, he's appealing to that young boy sort of uh, market, really. The, the sort of people, when you're like in college and you sort of gravitate towards like Scorsese and like the ultra violent sort of gangster movies just cause, to get that sort of kicks, and that's what he essentially provides. So once he 
moves out of this period. I know a lot of people like going, oh, he's gone too commercial, he's sort of sold out, he's, he's rubbish and all the rest of this. And I feel that he was just, once he gets commercial, he just becomes interesting again as a director. He's trying new things. He's experimenting with different styles as he obviously is now. I mean, he's making films in so many different styles of genre, which we never thought we'd see. I mean, I never thought we'd see a romantic musical um, like For Love's Sake from, from UK. I thought um, that when we had um, uh, The Happiness of the Katamuris, I thought that was going to be as light as, as his work got. But obviously he's proven time and time again that he's not a director that you can sort of like pigeonhole into one box. And I can't help but wonder the fact that Imprint was banned initially um, during the initial run of Masters of Horror. Because, I mean, he was brought over along with all these other directors like Carpenter and... Dario Argento to do the Masters of Horror and I know Dario Argento was really upset that his episode Jennifer got cut, there were scenes of penis chomping that got uh, cut so he was really upset about that and then Mike's episode just got banned and only came out on as part of like the DVD set and I think to myself at least it seemed that that was like the turning point you know he'd he'd sort of reached his as far as he could go with just doing extreme cinema and so when you look at each other killer he's still looking at a director who's running there's very little left in the tank at that point of what you can do. I mean, when you look at Ishe, it's sort of like pushing it to the very extreme. I mean, it's sort of like, what else can we do? Um, let's hang a guy on hooks and pour hot oil on his back. It's what haven't I done already? And I think you've got to sort of at least credit BK for at least trying to do new things, even if they were often very disgusting things that he was trying. Yeah, I, I, I've seen reviews. It's quite polarizing. Um, where people will criticise his film for for almost being quite empty or just being there for shock value. Um, I think there's more there to it than that. And again, we'll talk about some of that later with Dead or Alive. Um, because I think that's a film, again, spoilers, that could be criticised for that. Um, but I think, you know, you've named a couple of films there that I'm, I, I, I adore and you couldn't call them necessarily... Uh, empty and just there for shock value um yeah he's, he's a fascinating director really um so i was i i picked sort of three films from this period that i would recommend and i was going to compare and contrast them against yours <laughs> okay but <laughs> you just spoiled something there and you get you gave me a bit of a surprise about one of the ones that you chose um, <laughs> no, no, no! I got a little too highbrow for you. It, so. it was a bit. It was a kind of interesting because I think. So again, I'm going back to you know the, the Stephen that picked up Audition and was blown away by it. Um, I can think of three films that I followed that up with. Um, I think you've mentioned two of the three. Um, so the first one I'd pick up was um, when I found <laughs> the happiness of the Katakuris. Um, for those of you that haven't seen it, and again, it's a film we must talk about in the future. Although we could probably just have a, Taki, a Takashi Maiki podcast, couldn't we? And we'd get a hundred episodes. <laughs> but um, so it, it, it's base. It's basically a remake of a Korean movie, um, a really, really good Korean movie actually, <laughs> called <laughs> The Quiet Family, which again is another film I suggest we uh, we maybe talk about in the future, um, where he takes this really sort of black comedy, and turns it into a horror musical with claymation sequences um songs and it's just 
crazy, yet it all works. I think that's the thing that so we talked you talked about for love's sake, which is I guess the the ultimate resolution of the Mikey musical, <laughs> which which plays it very straight. But this does anything but, and it throws lots of ideas at the screen, but somehow it just about keeps together and manages to. It, it's it's a remake of a film that he could have equally made. You could have seen Mikey making that film in Japanese, and it still would have been a good film. But it would have been a very obvious remake this one takes that and just throws a load of weirdness in so i was kind of blown away by the happiness of the katakuris and it's it's still one of my favorite mikey films the other one i remember getting and i got it back i ordered it from lovefilm.com if you back remember that when you used to order dvds and they used to turn up and you'd have to give them back and i got a copy of visitor q now visitor q is not funny well it is it, it's <laughs> i would say it's probably the epitome of the madness of mikey would you agree <laughs> of this it's, period it's a, it's micro, a different sort of fun it's a micro budgeted collection of well quite really taboo subjects and basically a stranger goes and visits a family and bad shit happens but it's not really up to the stranger they're doing bad shit to each other everywhere there's um incest there's mountains of breast milk there's necrophilia there's there's all sorts of it but again from that i could see i'm just trying to think that is after is that's after audition isn't it um because uh, Vince accused 2000 yeah so for every element of control that he showed in audition He's flipped it on its side <coughs> and completely lost it in um, in Visitor Q. And finally, in the film that I thought was really interesting that you picked up, which is probably another one of my top three Mikey films of all time, is The Bird People of China. Peter calls it a road movie, but it is. It's kind of a joke. It's based in China. Spoilers in the title, I guess. And it's got really... Int- you know, it's, a, it's a gentle drama with a little bit of fantasy at the end. And it's got something to say quite often i always think mikey's films can be quite empty and he's just going for the shock value or just the pure just the narrative the story that he's telling um or that you you could put some dream logic into it like visitor q i guess has got all sorts of uh, psychological things going on but the bird people in china is like a sort of a a bit of a fable and you could view it as like as an ecological fable but then it also is um it talks about well if we didn't have progress then the world would be okay but if we didn't have it then you wouldn't be able to see the bits of the world that would you know it's got really um it's got some really quite interesting themes but really quite low played and i think those three films you've got the you've got the inventiveness you've got the madness and then you've got this um sort of quietness and depth shows you the 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 breadth of the guy's ability and those films all came out in what uh 98 through to 2002 2001 so in three years he made three films which were entirely different but all clearly him so yeah it's i think this is this again is one of the reasons he worked so long in the in the director video market really is the fact that there's no real censorship for that market compared to obviously more commercial films where you've got to appease the censorship board so i think they just assume that because he's going out on video nobody's ever really going to see it it'd just be one of those forgotten films and 
you can tell during the outlaw period that he really sort of relishes that freedom and he he's constantly pushing boundaries regardless of if it makes the slightest bit lick of sense to anything i mean it's really also interesting when you look at the director see sort of cites as influences because he obviously cites uh, kira kurosawa um hido gosha and then he moves on to like western directors such as like david lynch david cronenberg and paul vernerhoven even citing starship troopers as his favorite film of all time so draw from you when it is but certainly i mean you obviously got elements of body horror you've got dream sequences there i mean yeah both which we've shown in his work cronenberg uh, in this period is clearly an influence um, yeah the the, um, the 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 body horror side of things but not just that sometimes the um the coldness of some of the worlds that he creates um they're not often full of warmth are they so that that feels cronenbergian and i guess to a degree lynchian but cronenberg feels a better fit to me and i agree starship troopers is one of the best films ever made okay discuss <laughs> i did a whole episode i did a whole podcast on the bds <laughs> with uh emma with emily who came on to talk about barbara go back and uh, check it she's out she's a big <laughs> She's a big Starship Troopers fan. I, I love the fact Starship Troopers is now seen as a military satire. And when it came out, nobody saw it as that. They just thought it was a fun sci-fi movie, which had mistakenly been rated 15 when it's very clearly an 18. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I The word of mouth for that film was insane at my school. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you get to see boobs. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess you do. And you get to see bums and, as well. And extreme violence. And it's like... And it's got Michael Ironside, which is just like a selling point. Is that him or Clancy Brown? And Dougie Hauser. I think like... <laughs> That's it? No. Is he in that? Yes, he yes, is. Yes, he he's is, the, yes. Um, he's the psychology, and it's got um, Castle Von Dien. Yep. In his debut. was at one point. At one point, he was going to play uh, Patrick Bateman in Rules of Attraction, which is sad that it never happened, because he would have been really cool as that. Um, and it's got Denise Richards, who, for one hot moment, had a career. For two films. <laughs> she was a Bond girl, you know? She was, so she was Holly Christmas or whatever. Oh, Jesus Christ. Nuclear scientist. <laughs> it's, it's, she, she was a, about as plausible as a Dan Brown character. She was indeed, yes. Anyway, we digress. But, <laughs> Yes, for for decent podcasts, we do just talk about a lot of Western podcasts, <laughs> Western cinema. Um, but anyway, obviously back onto Dead or Alive. Uh, this is a first part of a trilogy of films. Now, this is a trilogy in a very Eastern sense in the fact that it's recurring themes and ideas rather than characters. Um, in particular, we have the idea of these two actors, uh, Riki Takeuchi and Shao uh, Kiwa. Uh, battling each other through time and space as they constantly reappear as characters facing off against each other through different scenarios. The third film taking it things way into the future um, for a very sort of cyborg uh, sci-fi-esque tale which ends up with them form their heads being turned into the testicles of a giant robot which if you watch it it makes more sense than it does me telling you now. But... Um, the film itself, I mean, as I said, it was released in 1999, golden year for cinema. I don't, I would go and fight, you know, anyone who wants to say that 1999 is isn't the best year for cinema. I know there's people out there who are going to say, oh, 84 was good because Ghostbusters got released, but no, 1999 is where all the gold of the cinematic rainbow is, and you know, if you just go through that list of films that came out that year, it's just like awesome film after awesome film, but. 
Uh, we obviously get this film. We obviously got over here in the UK a little later. We got it, I think it was around 2002, 2001, I would say. Because it was Tarzan who obviously bring it over. And Yeah, uh, it would it would have... It came over as part of that post-audition boom. So audition wouldn't make it over here to 2000, did it? So it must have yeah, been the following um, year or two. Because you know, um, Tarzan put this one out, which is obviously how I saw it. And uh, the film itself, it uh, sees a, a triad called uh, Riguchi and his small gang, who are basically trying to take over the Japanese underworld, in particular in in the crime-ridden Shinjuku quarter. At the same time, we've got Detective Joama, here played by uh, Showa Kira, who's kind of like a dirty cop. He's very involved in the in the underworld. And at the same time, he's sets out with this real sort of like drive to take down uh, Ryuchi, uh, Ryuchi and his gang. Um, at the same time, the local underworld are also trying to take him out as well. And... Over the course of the film, we see this war erupt between the the triads and the yakuza, um, and all the while, uh, this detective is being sort of drawn further and further into the underworld. He's forced to make increasingly dirty deals, um, at the same time trying to raise money to pay for his daughter's expensive health problems. Um, all this building up to a finale, which is very Mikay, to say the least. And certainly in the reasons he gives for it, but we'll come come to that a bit later. But um, still, I mean, were you a fan of this one prior to obviously us discussing it tonight? Or well, I get I first saw it fairly recently. Um, I think I talked about it on the podcast where I picked up the um, the box set from I yeah. want to say Arrow. I can't remember it's Arrow Eureka, whatever one of one of those. Um, and I had avoided it before because. I find Yakuza dramas, even though I've just waxed lyrical about one a bit earlier tonight, but I, I do find Yakuza films, even if they're Mikey ones, a little bit tiresome because there's only so many shiny suits and those loud, <laughs> shouty accents I can handle. Um, and I, I just find a bunch of men running around shooting and stabbing each other uh, less than entertaining. But I remember, and I, I again, I'll say it again, for me it's that opening ten minutes of the film the astonishing uh, energy <laughs> and <laughs> more happens in the first 10 minutes of that film than happens in most directors careers right At any you could take any moment from that opening 10 minutes put it in any other film and that would be the moment of the film that you remember i think that's fair enough to say <laughs> you get violence you get sex you get rapes you get uh, loads of things going on which all do have something to do with the main film itself the events are getting set in motion but it's to me that that that, that it's the best five ten minutes of mikey ever and then you follow it up with just a few minutes later we have a policeman um basically interview a uh an informant while the informant's making a bestiality porn movie. I mean, it's the stuff going on in that opening segment of the film is just mind-blowing. And then you factor that in with what happens at the end, and it's just utterly memorable. I'll twist it around, though, and say there's quite a lot in the middle, which is freaking boring. <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, I, have to go, I mean, I'm going to go on record and say that when this film came out, I absolutely adored this, this movie. And obviously coming back to 
this film as we're saying older if not wiser viewer and I mean I it, it didn't play for me myself the same as it did when I initially saw it and I think that's also got a lot to do with the fact that since this film has come out we've had a lot of other directors who do similar ideas but but better so obviously since the film came out we've obviously had like Patreon Works Vengeance trilogy we've had like the films to see on Sono who especially as later is more recent films when we look at um, things such as like like Cold Fish just the idea of violence on, on film um, we'd never seen violence done the way that, that Mike was doing it when this film came out and certainly when as you said that first, that opening 10 minutes with like the punk rock guitar rift and it's basically Mike there giving his finger to the world as he announces himself as this bad boy of Asian cinema. I mean, I love the tagline that some of the DVDs came out and it said that Takashi Miki, the rabid dog of Japanese cinema, returns to bite the world on its ass. Which I think says a lot about how Miki was being portrayed. I mean, he was... In many ways, he was sort of, he was playing up to this image of being this mysterious, like, dark filmmaker. You know, he was, like, constantly being photographed with, like, holding animal heads and, like, there's that... Really, um, classic photo that was in Empire Ways standing in the middle of a marketplace holding this pig's head. Um, and he was like constantly like photograph of his sunglasses always on, regardless if it was day or night. And I think he was playing up to this this idea of being this mysterious filmmaker. And certainly, when you look at a film like Dead or Alive, he you kind of wonder what sort of person makes a film like this. Because, as you said, in that opening scene, we've got uh graphic gay sex we've got throats being slit we've got people snorting meat along lengths of coke which makes that really amazing gift that we put up on the facebook page meat along it's about five (laughs) meters long (laughs) i was gonna say i can't believe that didn't kill him but it's all right it didn't (laughs) last didn't last more than 30 seconds after that And um, you've got like uh, you've got that other gangster boss who's there, like eating like bowl after bowl of noodles, so that when he's shot in the chest, like noodles spray out at the screen. And I mean, this whole opening sequence, it, while initially when you look at it, it's like, oh my god, this is just like the most extreme ten minutes of cinema you're going to you're going to see. It does actually have this part, and I think it comes in retrospect when you watch it again. You see that it's basically about setting up this world that's happening in Shinjuku, all these different crime bosses, and um basically Ruchi and his gang are basically going in and wiping them all out and take sort of staking their claim and it i mean it's the fact that we have all these scenes and then we got like these interludes of his girlfriend who's like a stripper so you get nudity as well in the first 10 minutes so you know good t- good news for yourselves if you want to see uh see nudity in, um, in, in, in the opening parts of your film you you you, you get, every box is ticked any any yeah. anything people actually go to the cinema for, it's there. <laughs> and um I have to say that it ends in such a weird way because we end up back at the strip club and one of the gang one of uh, one of the gangies like basically he goes in the strip club and he's there being painted up so he looks like a clown. So this is a strip club where not only do they have like gratuitous nudity with like hot age, hot uh, girl dancers, they also have interludes where they have random knife throwing acts where two guys in the underpants throw, uh, sort of like power this uh, spinning wheel which then for some reason uh, turns into Ruchi who is just basically just scouts the screen and looking only as cool as Takaguchi can. I don't, I I mean, no, it, I'm sorry, you haven't described this right. <laughs> There's a guy on a bicycle, a fixed bicycle <laughs> in a posing pouch 
And when he cycles, he makes this wheel turn in which another man in opposing pouch is attached with a sock puppet between his legs that's fondling his testicles, right? While another man, who we recently saw kill the rapist, the, uh, the, 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 the gay rapist character in the toilets of the bar, um, has dressed as a clown and throws four knives at him. And as you rightly say, it suddenly turns into another character altogether, one of our main characters of the film. Yeah. I, I, I just... Again... That's that thing, that moment on its own. If that was in a, I don't know, Nick Rogue film, that would be the moment we remembered. <laughs> this, this, it's it's so it's so out there, and it's so amongst so much other out there stuff. You forgot about the sock puppet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the sock puppet is covered in his crotch. <laughs> I mean, what the actual f is any of that about, <laughs> sir? It's kind of like uh, when Tarantino uses Michelou at the opening of Pulp Fiction. It's throwing down the gauntlets to the audience. It's all like, it announces it's like, you know, we're this extreme movie. We're just like throwing all these elements at you and you know, get out of our way if you can't stand this because we're just going to power them through. And it's kind of di- anticlimactic really because you have all these scenes and then it's very sort of very quiet drama and you have this detective going around and interviewing informants and we obviously have this gang who are basically performing all these hits they're, di- they're disrupting trade in the Shinjuku district they're trying to make a mark for themselves and and this gang boss his brothers were also returned from the US and he's trying to figure out himself where he fits in whether he's going to go into this sort of criminal life that his brother's obviously heading up or if he's going to live civilian life um, and I think this is also the, hampered slightly by the fact that the film I don't think had a huge budget so we have a lot of very confused scenes of well, they appear to be at a graveyard, but it also seems to be a very muddy beach, which I didn't understand at all. Yeah, you see, that... <laughs> okay. I mean, we've barely left the first 15 minutes of the film. There's so much to pack into it. So, yeah. Uh, that, that, that... You're absolutely right. It does <coughs> seem to be... They, they seem to just be having a bit of fun on a very mm. bloody beach. A bloody beach? On a very muddy beach. Muddy beach. But what I actually took out of that is when we first are at that graveyard with all those sort of graves that are all at angles and it's very great. It's beautiful. It's, it, it, you know, I I have had a go at uh, Mikey before for not necessarily being the most visually interesting director. And I think some of that's due to the speed he rushes through things and the people that he has helped him work on it. You know, I don't think there's always a lot of time to sit there and worry about the perfect shot and the perfect cut and the perfect camera lens to use and things like that. But I thought, just just for a moment, that's beautiful. But then it just goes freaking weird and four of our characters are clearly just having a bit of a laugh in a, as the tyke's gone out a long way. <laughs> and, and you're right, it's confusing. Um, uh, and so you go from this crazy whirlwind of a beginning to some confusing stuff to, yeah, then it starts playing it pretty straight, doesn't it? For a while. It does, um, now, I mean, obviously, we mentioned uh, Takeuchi. He is, for those obviously that know, he's really sort of like a, a legendary actor when it comes to making Yakuza movies because it's basically what, what he made. And this wasn't even his first collaboration with Mike. And he goes all the way back to 1996 with Peanuts and Food of the New Generation, which, again, is a film which, uh, in classic Mike sense, um, has some very eye opening moments. There's a girl who shoots a dart from a very intimate place, which. Um, 
got the acclaim of Jadowalski, who proclaimed it this amazing film and that Mike was this amazing new breed of director who was going to lead the revolution in cinema. I mean, I, I, I would sort of say that this this feels like the evolution from Fudo, the new generation. Um, if you were sort of going to join some dots along his career, that film feels very much part of this universe. Obviously, he comes to do Dead Alive in 1999. Um, now, I mean, are you familiar with him as a actor? I mean, do you follow his sort of films at all? Because I, I sort of stumble in and out of his work. I've never sort of like dedicated myself to just following the films he puts out but I just have seen a lot of films he he sort of appears in because I've watched a lot of Yakuza movies and I mean he turns up in the sort of beat Takashi role in Battle Royale 2 as well mm. um, and he, had, he did have a short stint as a wrestler as well so. as you do, I'm just having a think I think he's the sort of guy I'd always rec- I'd always recognise I'm not. I mean, I, I guess I was pretty clear. I'm not a huge fan of um, of Yakuza films as a whole, um, but yeah. he's a very recognisable face. Not just in the um, not just in the Dead or Alive films. I mean, he even turns up in Tokyo Tribe. Um, he does, and uh, he's also in Takeshi's Castle. Is he? Of course, he is. Yes, he's, he is. He's the guy with the sword. He is. Yes. Which I used to try and point out to my friends at work, and you know, they went. Asian cinema fans, I guess, or certainly not fans of Japanese Yakuza movies because they didn't really care. So, um, but yeah, he was. I mean, that's a unusual property. I mean, that's obviously Beat Takashi's project, um, which always it's always like astounding me the fact that Beat Takashi was there producing this this game show where people just run around maiming themselves. And I mean, also uh, Takeuchi also did the the dub for Imitation. Uh, Immortan Joe in Fury Road as well, so And his likeness is in Yakuza, the Yakuza computer game as well. So he's um he's I could never get into those games. It just it never seemed like a game, it just felt like you know, a lot of sub games like play baseball or fish for rubbish out of the river. Yeah, I mean it's anything Sega makes any money out of these days, isn't it? <laughs> those games. But yeah, um, but he is he is he is um he's one of those faces if there's a Yakuza film He's probably a face that you're going to see in it. He's he's a, quite a handsome fellow, isn't he? With uh, his jet black hair and his um, that that fro, and, and, yeah, and his um, <laughs> and he's got he's quite a unlike a lot of Japanese, but he's got a very square jaw and yeah, I, I I can see that he's um he's evoking a certain spirit. And there've been actors like him before, like in the sixties and seventies, who made their careers in yakuza movies. It's a it's a common. It's a common genre to act within, just like gangster movies, I suppose. Yeah, I think the problem is he's sort of, he's sort of got this look, as you say, he's a square draw and he's got this real brute sort of look and he's got the gravelly voice. And then you try to have him have these moments of like, you know, tenderness and family connection. It just never works in this film because he's just too, he's too gruff to play any sort of like emotional sort of role for myself. So Yeah, yeah. And, and he's... <sighs> Everyone else in the film, certainly in his sort of side of the story, is a little bit comic. Yes. And he's a bit... I mean, it is comedic in his over-the-top straightness. But, um, do you know what I mean? He doesn't feel like he's playing with the same joke as everybody else. I mean, he's cool as fuck. Let's not, let's not make any bones about it. But uh, it doesn't... I, I don't always think that the... 
the tones of his the characters gel. But hey, um, now I think obviously if you, in terms of like the film itself, I think the be- the way I was describe this film, I was describe it as the the um, version of Heat, the Michael Mann movie that goes way too long. And certainly when you look at, obviously, his two leading men here, you've got, as I said, you've got Takeuchi and you've got Sho um, Ekawa, who, again, he's a regular player for Mike, who turned up in Rainy Dog and Ley Lines, and he did several other films. And you've got these two huge star leading men, especially within sort of genre cinema, facing off against each other, finally. And I I think this is probably why Mike made three of these movies, just because he had these two leading men, and he just constantly found ways to sort of bring them back together. But in sort of comparison, Detective uh, Jima's a much more quieter character. And to say he's the dirty cop, he's he's very restrained. He's not sort of like your traditional sort of dirty cop. I mean, he's obviously trying to earn money so he can pay for his daughter's um, surgery. Um, and at the same time, he never seems like overly phased by the fact that he's sunk to this level where, as you said, he's getting informant from pornographers and hanging around sleazy bars and... Um, dealing with these horrible people who've got even sort of more dubious sort of uh, tendencies for what they like to do in their, their downtime as we see with when we look at the fate of one of uh, Rayuchi's gang it, it's um, they make a play that he's almost like responsible for keeping a balance isn't he um, he's <laughs> It's not. It's not a battle of good against evil. It's a battle of just letting everybody just get on with it, and not too many dead bodies turn up, please. <laughs> he seems to be the sort of more of a caretaker than a, than a guardian. Yeah, I mean, he that seems to be his uh, his whole thing. is just is keeping the balance, and obviously Ruchi's there is upsetting the balance because you know he's about as a half brick to the face. Um, he has no qualms about just wiping out anyone or any thing that sort of gets in his way he's got this sort of like cruise missile sort of purpose in life and he's got no sort of like respect for anyone who's there before he's just anyone who gets in his way is just sort of like you either a friend or foe to him he's sort of very black and white and obviously with with Jima's world it's as you said he's he's the caretaker of Shinjuku Uh, he's definitely not improving anything that's for sure no, maintain the status quo. That's that's what we're about, isn't it? We talked a bit about the opening sort of violence. The shocking sort of scenes in this film are really sort of the selling point. I mean, we obviously get a, a um, Better Tomorrow 2 style shootout towards the end. We get... Um, I'm going to just say we're going to go into some spoilers here as well. Um, but um, it's, I don't know if it's a spoiler or just prior warning, but... Basically, um, one of Ryuchi's gang gets drowned in a paddling pool of excrement, which is just disgusting every time I watch it. And when I was watching it um, like last night, I was just like noting how long the girl was underwater for because she doesn't seem to. It, she seems to be underwater for like quite a long time, and it kind of reminded me of when they were doing the um, the cow trough scene in Clockwork Orange, where they almost drowned Malcolm McDowell. They held one towards that long, and I just wonder if it was the same for her. Oh, I assume it wasn't. Yeah, I. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking about the paddling pool of shits right now, and I'm just thinking, yeah, you know, I said, oh, it's really boring in the middle, and not much happens. I'm just remembered that, <laughs> but clearly cut it out of my head. But it's even like worse when he said, because 
obviously this um, this Yakuza boss is basically describing all these things that have apparently been happening to this girl that's basically catatonic in this padding pool of, of excrement and I don't know how this pool came together whether they, they had this prepared ahead of time or what but this apparently seems to be his his little kink is that he likes drowning people in a, in a kid's paddling pool of excrement and I think I was remember watching this as when I was there uh, when it first came out and I was like is there something wrong with me watching these movies because I can't think that, that normal people are out there like watching movies where people are dying in such horrible ways <laughs> No, and um, yeah, I mean, you you compare it to, I don't know, let's look at something like Goodfellas, right? Okay, an American gangster movie. Yeah, we we marvel at Joe Pesci's mad, crazy uh, lunatic, yeah? But there's nothing in it like a man who kills people in a paddling pool, uh, an inflatable paddling pool full of <laughs> sewage. That's, that's just, yeah. I assume that's what it is. <coughs> no, I don't because... I don't want to think. Um, and I guess that's what makes the cinema extreme. And I guess that's what drew us in back in the day. Is that we... These are... I mean, there's this, this, there's this complete dichotomy ahead. This is not how Japanese people are. They are a very conservative, very private people. They don't talk out of... T- I work for a Japanese company. I meet Japanese people. They do not say things... And act like we see in these films. These films are so far divorced from what the public base of the Japanese psyche is. And yet it's more extreme than anything. I'm, I'm sure Zoe's seen some stuff that's crazy. I have no doubt this. that Zoe's yeah. seen some stuff. And I was I was disappointed we couldn't obviously get on for, for this show. I mean, she's obviously... Uh... She's obviously the the queen of extreme. I mean, she did a twenty four hour marathon just watching extreme cinema. So. Yeah, so 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 I know stuff in the West like that does exist, but it's very much in. Uh, you wouldn't find the DVDs in HMV, which is where we would have got this from. Yeah, uh, the the these films have all been remastered for Blu Ray and re released in <coughs> the last six months. Um, you wouldn't find that happening to an American or British or, or even European equivalent. So this this strange dichotomy between the Japanese and this subgenre of Japanese cinema. Because believe you me, as we know, lots of Japanese cinema ain't like this. <laughs> this is this no, is the exception. <laughs> it was really shaking up the system because before this, when you look at the films that were coming out and say when in terms of Asian cinema we had we had the Ghibli movies and we had anime. And we had like samurai movies and pop samurai movies and things like Lone Wolf and Cub and like martial art movies. And then we have this boom in sort of Asian cinema revival and it splits off in these two separate paths of these initial three films that, are, that come across and start really getting people excited. So we have like all the J-horror sort of boom and all the Asian horror sort of stuff. And then you have these really extreme films come across and you obviously got like Mikkei's back catalogue has just been raided by not only Tartan but... All these other smaller labels are bringing across things like Full Metal Yakuza. Anything that Mikkei is attached to, they're bringing across. And it leads to things such as like Suicide Club and like Human Guinea Pig and Man Behind the Sun. And we just went off in this really extreme sort of way. So you've got things such as like uh, Bloody Bodybuilder in Hell, um, Evil Dead Trap, A Wicked City. 
any sort of like thing that was like shocking and disgusting we were just like we couldn't get enough at the, at the period it just felt like you just constantly getting these films coming out and certainly tartan were doing their bit for the cause with their asia extreme label which i know about yourself but i was on black star at the time and you could search by label and it would tell you all like the what was coming out through through tartan i just used to pre-order anything that they were putting out onto the asian extreme label was like freezer and princess blade and just like anything that they were putting out regardless if i knew anything about it i was just ordering oh i uh, i'd be down hmv in that in that <coughs> in that asia you know that world cinema section buying everything they had uh or or renting it through love film like i said about Resident of q um yeah. I was I was addicted and, and it reawakened my love for Asian cinema now. I went exploring elsewhere, otherwise I think I'd have gone mad very quickly. <laughs> but um it was wholly that. Because before that it was Kurosawa films, yeah? It was um It's very highbrow it, in it many was ways. It was sort of like Kampopo, things like that. And all great films yeah. and filmmakers. Um you know, Japanese cinema was always something that I remember growing up being a thing, and it wasn't all samurai films, you know, there was, there was, and it wasn't all yakuza films. Well, now thinking about it, it probably was, but <laughs> but yeah, like you say, the, it was highbrow stuff. We never got to see this. Uh, well, I guess it all comes from that sort of that direct-to-video market, which, unlike in the West, when something's direct-to-video or direct-to-airplane or something like that, it it comes tarred with a well, it's it's not even a B movie; it's a C movie. It's going to be shit. Whereas that director video market in Japan is a training ground. That's where you earn your spurs. So it's not just Mikey that's come from that world. I think Sono's come from that world as well. I think various other yeah. directors have come from that world. You know, there's these studios that churn it out, get it straight out there, get it onto VCD, get it onto video, get it into hotel rooms. Um, some of it's crap, some of it's great, but you can do whatever you want. Um, because Japanese usually uh, have a very interesting relationship with censorship. <laughs> they, they don't censor the stuff that we've been talking about tonight, but they will censor a woman's vagina in a porn movie. Um, it's very... Yeah, basically Japanese <laughs> porn looks like Minecraft. <laughs> very good. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the same way the Americans have this strange... Um, it's very like America, yeah, where they're very, um, very conservative about sex, but very, um, very liberal about violence. It almost feels a bit like that. But it's all it's this, it's this DTV industry. It's this, it's this churn these films out. They cost a few thousand yens, well, a few tens of thousands of yen to make. Um, they'll probably make their money back, and let's just go back and make another one. It's guerrilla filmmaking as well. You know, these, these shoots are lasting ten, twenty days, not six months um but what it to me is interesting is that people like mikey like sono have come out of that world and become successful not just amongst us um uh sort of genre fans and against the festival fans stuff like they make full-on money-making box office successes back in asia uh, whereas I don't think the straight-to-video market necessarily over here has the same career path. I think I think you'll, I'm sure you'll be able to pick a couple of examples, but it's not that training ground in quite the same way. No, they used to be. I mean, back obviously in in the day when you had like Roger Corman's New World Pictures and things like that, they were 
they were basically these these film schools and you had a lot of directors who obviously came up i mean you obviously had people like joe dante and um james cameron these are the directors who like uh would come up through the roger corman film schools as we say and i don't think there is is that now um just purely because the the demand is different it's sort of like now obviously with these the way sci-fi churns up movies i mean what one Sharknado eight or whatever nonsense yeah, at you, the minute, and yeah, I mean you're quite right about Roger, the Roger Corman thing. That's very true. Um, certainly, um, yeah, films that are good, but of course people would get their breaks in television as well, which was another way, which probably wasn't the case in Japan. I think the TV and the cinema, or that 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 quick buck cinema, the the films played in the dirty downtown Tokyo cinemas, is very divorced from the the corporate TV world. Um, whereas in the West, TV was a place, you know, that's where Spielberg made his break, that's where um, various other people made their breaks, was was, was directing episodes of Columbo or whatever it is, you know, yeah. um, which I don't think they had in Japan. So I guess that's um, that's why. But yeah, I mean, obviously to bring it back into, obviously Dead or Alive, I mean, obviously Mike here, he's showing a real sort of flair for violence and, and extreme uh, subjects and... and it's I think in, in many ways it sort of hangs over Mikey's career because he's sort of like now known as this sort of director of extreme discovery because of what he did in this outlaw period and certainly when we look at this film it's a real it's kind of frustrating I think it's really just now as I said coming back to this film now I didn't enjoy this viewing as much as I did when I initially watched it and I was first getting into Mikey's films and as I said before I think it's just purely because I've seen other directors do similar ideas just better and more efficiently here and I think certainly with Dead or Alive it really falls apart when we haven't got one of these set pieces happening when it's just basically you know detective going around or just we're doing like some family drama moment with like the gang even though they throw in like little moments such as like the betrayal of one of the gang members who tries to run off with this with money from like a um, a bank heist that they do these sort of moments are so few and far between it's so like it struggles to hold your interest. It feels like too sort of like plodding, and it's only when we get like enough of those sort of big set pieces, like when we have the big shootout at the end, and you've got the guy who batters his uh, his hand. I they're fishing in these different bowls. I don't know if he's looking for weapons or what, but he manages to batter his hands because he manages to go through the correct sequence of things for battering food, and uh, he ends up battering his hand. So it ends up looking like uh, the cancer gun from Videodrome. Uh, yeah, <laughs> also um, reminded me of uh, Machine Girl. That's that happens in that as well, doesn't oh, it? Oh yeah. <laughs> so I mean, how did you obviously find like the bits when we aren't being shocked? Just the actual uh, sort of the supposed meat of of the film. What did you think of it? Because as I said, I thought it was very sort of plodding, and I found it found it harder to stick with on this viewing. Yeah, I I'm I'm with you. I think that opening and the ending bookend a fairly middling Yakuza-y uh, Yakuza versus Cops versus the Triads sort of film that we've both seen a million times before. Yes, there are moments yeah, which we've pointed out and, 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 and other things as well which, which either rise inter- raise interest or disgust us completely but I I had actually forgotten about the pool of shit <laughs> because the beginning and the end are so 
One is so such a brilliant piece of filmmaking, and the thing at the end is just so over the from top. It overshadows the whole film, and maybe that's yeah. the problem with it: is that there are the, the the nature of the film means that what goes on in the middle is a bit boring and is completely overshadowed. If the whole film was like the middle, I don't know, eighty minutes. I don't think we'd be looking at it. Yeah, it's... And I mean, even now when we're talking like the, about the highlights of the film, it's all these set pieces that are the highlights of the film. It's not like um, the moment where, where uh, Yaguchi's girlfriend's talking to one of the other gang members or like the the quieter moments between him and his brother or, you know, even just like the, the family drama of the detective and him, the situation facing that his daughter's got this like life-threatening disease. I mean, even when his family get wiped out, there's no real sort of emotion as such there. It only really serves to set up the final sort of uh, showdown between the, between the characters. Yeah, I, I and, and there are 80 characters in this film, I couldn't even tell you they were in it. You know, there's lots of faces and people and things like that, and I have no other than the main two guys I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be able to pick any of the others out of a lineup. other than I've seen lots of their faces before. But it's it's I, I don't really know much about their their stories, who they are. They're just they're just characters in a story, not not fully fleshed out. They're not engaging. Their storylines aren't engaging. They might be there for comic effect or for gross effect or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's it's weird because I remember, you know, I like I said, I first saw this maybe six months ago, and I was blown away by it. My second watch was not as blown away at all. The you've had you've had a few years for for the lustre to come off, <laughs> but it's actually fallen. It's fallen aside for me. You know, don't get me wrong. It you've got to see it. <laughs> you have to see this film, um, but be aware that 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 all the all the fun stuffs at the beginning and the end. Mm. I think if you can watch the Job or Briggs drive-in version of this. Because at least it breaks it up a bit more, and especially gives his uh, his little highlights. I mean, my favorite thing is the fact that he talks about with every Japanese genre filmmaker saying that the greatest influence is American horror films, and his response is, "What?" And they watch these films backwards on LSD. Um, he also has a real man crush on uh, Riki Takeuchi as well, which is really kind of cool to see. So, you know, clearly a man, a man of his cred, because you know he appreciates the Takeuchi. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so, um, finale time. Uh, obviously, the big finale here. Mike realizing that he's got two huge stars here, and he can't, in his mind, he can't let either one win because he's going to end up in, you know, like the Kong versus Godzilla, you know, Mike, Freddy versus Jason. You know, if you let one side win, you're going to end up with a really upset other side of the fan base. At least that's how it works in Mike's mind. So, what does he do? Uh, well, basically, he ends up with our detective pulling a rocket launcher out of nowhere. Um, the only other time I've seen a, ran- a rocket launcher randomly appear is when I look at the woman from nowhere, where her fake prosthetic leg was also a rocket launcher. So he uh, goes to blow up uh, Ryuchi with this rocket launcher, and Ryuchi pulls a magical fireball <laughs> out of his chest, which he throws at uh, our detective, uh, Joma. The end result being a nuclear explosion, which essentially annihilates all life on Earth, and then the film ends. 
I, I can't, I can't, I can't come back to that. Yeah, that's what happens. And <laughs> okay, it's did, when you saw this, did it, was your response was a what the hell just happened, and or b that was the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I think B probably <laughs> because and and it what it does it makes me think that that eighty minutes leading up to it was deliberately low key. <laughs> Just uh, so it, I mean it, it's uh, there's, there's a sort of there's a joke, isn't there? Well, that escalated fast. <laughs> no, it didn't because you haven't seen the end of Dead or Alive. That escalates quickly. God. And it, the fact it goes to credits, you think, have I missed something? You rewind the tape and it's like, no, that's how it ends. No. It's kind of like when we look at the end of Ghost in the Show, it's all like, oh, did I miss something here? <laughs> what do you mean that's it? Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, you had to come up with an ending and that is certainly an ending. It does feel a bit like a sixth formers story where they've finished, they've got to the end of the um, three pages they have to write and so they just kill everybody off. <laughs> They literally, um, Mikey literally kills everybody, the whole planet. Um, yeah, but I mean, he does it in a way that it makes not a lick of sense because we've obviously seen, we've seen this before. I mean, the, obviously, the end of Akira is is essentially the same thing. All life gets pretty much annihilated um, in that that nuclear explosion that uh, ends it all and. As I said, I mean, there's several American examples when we like look at things that's like Edit uh, vs. Predator Requiem or The Crazies, which uh, end with just that that huge uh, explosion out of nowhere. And I mean, this is yeah. Crazy. I mean, apoc- apoc- apocalypse endings aren't necessarily unique, but it's the facts. It's how this one goes from. I mean, it, it, it's it's been a pretty wild ride to get there. Yeah, and quite stylized at times. You know, the violence isn't terribly realistic, but it goes from being a a fairly stylized, violent yakuza film to Dragon Ball Z out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it just just takes a severe left turn in the realism stakes, um, and again that oh, that rescues the movie for me. Um, okay. Uh, I I I I love that it's completely nuts <laughs> at the end because we'll now tell people about that movie where they blow up the planet at the end. Oh, what sort of science fiction movie was that then? Oh no, it was a Yakuza film. <laughs> I I don't think it's one of Mikey's best. It wouldn't be in my. You know, if I if I had to give somebody a list of ten fil- Mikey films to watch, I. I don't think I'd be. This would be one of them. But if I was putting together a show reel of the most mental things that I've seen in a Mikey film, <laughs> the most Mikey moments, yeah, I reckon a third of them would be in this film. <laughs> it's um... a third of them would be from Visitor Q. A third of them would be from this film, and a third of them would be from everything else he's done. Yeah. I mean, I think up until, as I said, this this June, it was a film that I rated very highly in his filmography. And I think, as I said, just time and 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 um, seeing of what else is out there has uh, sort of like shifted my my sort of focus really. And obviously, there are people out there who wish that Mikey was still doing movies like this. And you know, these are sort of people that are watching things such as like Slot of Vomit Dolls and Hangar. Um, 
and so we don't appreciate the fact that he wants to go make <clears throat> films with a little more substance to them. But I think as it alive is a film that I think a lot of people remember for its set pieces more than the the, the meat between the set pieces. Um, so it's it's kind of disappointing, but at the same time, there's it's fun to revisit if that's. As I said, fun being the uh, <laughs> yeah. the questionable words of the day. Define fun. So I haven't seen the other two films. Are they similar okay. or are they um, uh, superior, inferior? Would you would you suggest me and the audience go and check the others out as well? I mean, I really liked I liked Dead or Alive uh, Final, which is the third film. Um, I really like that. It's basically got them playing as rival cyborgs. Uh, I thought that was really fun. The endings. Almost as batshit as this one. Uh, Dead or Alive 2. Uh, they, it's a film that I know there's people out there who like. Uh, basically, they this time they turn up as contract killers who are were also recognise each other as sort of childhood friends. And uh, they basically cross paths in the middle of a, a job and decide that they're going to use their talents for taking out evil. Um, which sounds like a really exciting film and, and kind of like Binot Saints, but instead it's actually kind of boring. Um, and there's a really random Kabuchi sort of sequence in the middle of it, which comes out of nowhere. But I never really can sort of vibe to the second one. But I like Final. I thought Final has a moment. And it's a lot more coherent than Dead or Alive, that's for sure. There seems to be an actual story in play there. Um, but Final was a real pain in the ass to get hold of. Because um, Tartan was really going to release it and never sort of did. And I think it is now obviously available, I think, through Arrow, I want to say. And... I caught it when it was shown on Mumbai. So. Yeah, and it's on the Arrow. Um, there's a there's a three disc set. I just haven't worked my way okay. through it yet. Um, as with most things, I get. <laughs> I, I watched the one film I actually want. I got the Ring box set the other day, and I've only rewatched the first op- first one. Rewatched the first. Um, but yeah, I mean, of this period, I mean, it's certainly uh, an interesting highlight. I mean, I think for myself, I'm kind of like. I feel more obliged to check out his latest stuff for like see things such as like you know Yataman, uh, which is a really fun sort of superhero movie based on the uh, the popular comic, for the popular anime, um, and things that you know Thirteen Assassins I really love, so I I kind of like lean more towards his more um, more mainstream work now than I do the sort of more extreme than checking out the more extreme parts, but but uh, yeah I mean as I said we've covered quite a few of the the decent entries of the of the outlaw period and certainly if anyone wants to outlaw lie um if they want to uh, let us know any of their personal favorites of the outlaw period please let us know in the comment section uh we'd love to hear what your sort of favorites are so but um for yourself i mean Stephen, is there anything else that you would sort of like want to recommend with it at all so sort of other choices i guess i mean i guess i picked my um <laughs> i picked picked the other ones from the the outlaw period earlier but um I, I, yeah, I just I don't think you can go wrong with any of those. I guess if you wanted, so that's that sort of this is outlaw period, crazy experimental Takashi Mikey Yakuza film. I really really enjoyed. Um, he's made a couple of them. The uh, the, the anime, I think no, the manga run, um, manga adaptations. I'm um, 2013 and 2016's Molsong films. Um, okay. Molsong Undercover Agent Reiji and Molsong Hong Kong Capericho, Cap- 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 I think it is. I don't know. Um, they are they are more of the shiny suited, a bit over the top Yakuza films um, with a quite a charming lead, a bit more comic. Well, not more comic. 
in terms of being amusing rather than gross or hyper real or hyper violent um yeah but i think that shows you where he's come as a director both a director of people and as a director of just cinema they're they're, they're really entertaining i don't know where you know even if they're even available in this country i was very lucky to review them feast and kicks but they both really um really charmed me and they show yeah show real growth <laughs> some what 20 years later or 15 mm. 20 years later of what he was able to achieve given a similar brief you know a wacky yakuza story and they're much more entertaining this they're not as out there not maybe as memorable but they're better movies all round awesome um as always, if you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button. Whether you're listening to us on Spotify or Podomatic or iTunes uh, or Anchor, wherever you, your chosen uh, podcast feed is, and please do uh, hit the like and subscribe buttons. It really helps raise the profile of the show. You can, as always, uh, also check out our blog, which is asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. On there, we've got like the anime vault. We've got... Um, the movie vault with uh, David Brooker, Blueprint Reviews, is doing reviews for us over there. We've got the mixtape. Uh, we've got all sorts of uh, fun stuff over there, so definitely check it out. And of course, you can also follow us on social media, be it Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Um, you can keep up to date with all our latest reviews and things through there as well. Um, but So thank you, as always, to everyone for listening, and thank you, Stephen. Pleasure as always, sir. And uh, before we go, what are you choosing for our next pick? Okay, <clears throat> right, yes, um, and it's going to be a surprise to Elwood this week because I haven't told him yet. Um, I recently received, I talked about it last episode, another box set. I want to start getting through them, so I <coughs> thought we could watch the first one together. So we're going to watch Lone Wolf and Cub, Sword of Vengeance. How does that sound? Oh, very nice. Uh, pop summary, sort of classic. Obviously, we when we did the Top 50 Asian Cinema, we talked already about, about um, Baby Cotton Power at the River Sticks, which is the second film, so... Yeah, we'll go all the way back to the the start. Um, obviously, this is a film released originally as Shogun Assassin over here in the UK. Um, that edited together, obviously, uh, the first film, Sword of Vengeance, and uh, Baby Cut the River Sticks into what many people call a best of um, collection. But I thought it was just like a a really fun, a really fun uh, little film that's uh, fun to show if you want to get people hooked on these movies to show them that because it's sort of like as I say, it's all the best bits and uh, cuts out uh, some of the slower moments for them but yeah I'm very excited to talk about sort of Avengers because I feel it's very overlooked everyone sort of gets excited about the second film onwards and they kind of overlook sort of Vengeance so it'd be fun to revisit that and, and, and I think Samurai films is something we haven't really looked at yet we're, we're over two years in and um, <coughs> Ch- no, Chambara I mean, is, is, is a genre we've I don't think we've covered We've not done Chambara, and we've certainly not done the pop samurai genre, which I would say this is more right. part of. I mean, I mean, it's taken us till now to do a Takashi Miike film, so... Um, <laughs> yeah, but we've kind of been we, avoiding it on purpose. <laughs> we, 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 we kind of get distracted by the shiny films, yeah. that's our problem. Um, but, as always, if, you know, if, if you out there have got a film that you really want to see us review, then uh, please do let us know. Either on Facebook or Twitter or wherever you happen to get your social interaction from, uh, let us know and you know, we would certainly add it to the list and, and certainly have a look. So we know we've have a quest to look at uh Tetsubura, uh, which obviously leads us down like, you know, the Tetsuro, the Iron Man sort of route. 
and uh, all that sort of fun body horror. So I think that's enough one we're building up to slowly. So yeah, absolutely no. And if people have got suggestions from other places that that we probably don't, we probably do stick in our safe safe places, our Japan's, our Koreas. Or, um, do we've barely looked at any Chinese films, so I'm going to have to sort that out for next time as well. Okay, cool. Uh, well, until next time, though, uh, thank you as always for listening, and uh, we'll be back next time talking about Sword of Vengeance. Kino